You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London with McKinsey Publishing. Let's start with a question. What's the smartest device you own? Is it your phone, your laptop? Maybe you're wearing a smartwatch? Well, if you drive a car that's less than a few years old, it's probably smarter than any of these. And your next car will be even smarter. More sensors, more connectivity, more processing power, perhaps even the ability to drive autonomously. This is all very exciting for us consumers. And for car makers and suppliers, it means there's a lot of change coming down the road. For a quick spin through the issues, I'm joined today by Asatosh Padi, a McKinsey senior partner based in Chicago, and Andreas Schiesner, a senior partner based in Munich. Asatosh, Andreas, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Simon. I'm happy to be here. Could you talk about the four ACEs, A-C-E-S, which is a useful sort of framework and almost a mnemonic device for thinking about the trends? Um, why don't you just give us a quick tour of, of the four ACEs? So listen, our view is that the, uh, the automotive industry will see more disruption in the next 10 years than it has seen in the last 50 years. This disruption will be driven by four factors that we call the ACEs. It stands for autonomous, connectivity, electrification, and ride-sharing. Autonomous really is along a full range, what we call from level one to level five, with level five being a driverless car that can operate in any part of the world. Connectivity is, you know, you need to start to think of the car as a computer on wheels, and it is going to start, and, and a computer generates massive amounts of data. You know, a car is going to have 200 million lines of code, software code in the future. All of Facebook, when comparison today, is roughly about 50 million lines of code. So it's, it's a massive change. Electrification is a shift away from the bedrock of the industry, which has been the internal combustion engine, to a whole range of battery applications. It's really been driven by the environmental factors, and the only reason electrification currently exists is because of regulations. But regulations is going to drive initial adoption that then provides the scale that the industry needs for electrification to become a viable economic option. So our view is that we are likely to get to a tipping point by which battery costs drop from the 200 to $225 a kilowatt hour today to the neighborhood of about roughly $100 a kilowatt hour, which, which is going to be the break-even point when uh, fleets, for example, will start to prefer electric vehicles over the internal combustion engine. On ride-sharing, all of us have been users of Uber and Lyft, and we've all experienced the benefits and convenience of ride-sharing. This is what we call ride-sharing 1.0, where consumers are taking existing cars that are typically standing in the garages or in the parking lots for about 97% of the time, and thinking about how they can monetize uh, an asset in which they've put in the money. There are real limitations with the current ride-sharing model, for example, you can only travel point to point. It typically works in an urban environment. It does not work with kids. And as we think about ridesharing 2.0, there is going to be an unlock on each one of these as car companies start to reimagine how a car for ridesharing is going to look and feel different. One great example would be around the usage of fleets. When you start to look at fleets, 
the fleet owners are going to make decisions on car buying based on the total cost of ownership. And this is where electrification and ride sharing start to go hand in hand together. And in fact, we expect that a lot of the vehicles that will be used for ride sharing standpoint might actually be electric vehicles. Now, building on this, while the individual trends are already shaping up the industry, it's the convergence of those four trends that really make completely new form of mobility happen in the future. And we did analysis on that, how in certain cities, high income, highly densely populated cities, we will see a future with fully connected robocars, robocars that connected to vehicle control centers in the city and are fully integrated into the mobility infrastructure of cities and are really providing completely new forms of mobility. So the customer experience will change, the offering of the automotive industry and adjacent industries will completely change. And while today those disruptive business models that Asutosh has just talked about make up about 1% of the revenues, our model shows that by 2030, which is just two to three generations of cars out, we will have 25% of revenues coming from those new disruptive business models. So the change is happening very, very fast. One of the things that's quite difficult from a consumer perspective is, is just to sort of understand, or even just somebody who's interested in cars like me, how fast is this actually going to happen? Like how, do, how does this look five years out, ten years out? Like when does the fleet of robocars arrive? Is that, that sort of 20 years out by the sound of it? But just talk us through a little bit, the, when is all this going to happen? Many of the changes will, will take time. Um, we've just been talking about the different levels of autonomy, but we will see first signs of change relatively quickly. I mean, there's lots of uh, companies now working very heavily to bring out the first set and the first small fleet of robocars within the next couple of years. Yeah, yes, they will be geofenced, they will just be working on certain conditions, like no snowfall, like we often have in Austria, but in certain type of cities and in, in certain um, restricted um, times of the day, uh, we will be able to have an autonomous driving experience. And for example, the first autonomous bus um, in Germany has just been started yesterday in a small little town for like a distance of a quarter of a mile, but we will see the change happening in certain instances relatively quickly. And as I said, by the next 10 years, those changes will really have a fundamental impact on the profit pool as well as on the revenue pool of the industry. I expect that electrification is going to play out in the next five years or so, starting with China and then starting with fleets back in the United States. If you look at connectivity, it's already here. I think most consumers are uh, really paying a lot of attention to the kind of software enablement that cars provide. And many of the car makers have come back and completely rethought uh, the consumer, the customer experience and the customer interface. Uh, ride sharing is already, ride sharing what we call 1.0 is accelerated significantly. The market has been growing in high double digits for the last several years. I think ride sharing 2.0 is likely to happen in the next three to five years. And from an autonomous standpoint, our view is that the level four applications are, we expect to see that start to happen in the next possibly three to five years. We have seen that um, investments in those ACES technologies have um, increased by the factor of 12 in the last couple of years. So if I'm a car maker, all this is probably both very exciting, but also a little bit alarming. Uh, as you said, Asatosh, when there are big technology changes like this, control points change, profit pools change, 
the major players often change quite quickly in the case of the smartphone industry. How do we see um, big car companies uh, reacting here? The first thing that I think car companies need to get uh, a handle on is a viewpoint that the revenue pools from the traditional technologies and the traditional business models, which is where we're primarily selling a car to a consumer, that has essentially flattened out. All the growth in the future is going to come from the combination of new, of what we call the ACES. It's new technologies, it's new business models. If you recognize that, then we would say there's a few things that they need to consider, which are very different than how the industry has historically operated. The first is, what are the control points within the ecosystem? Control points meaning the elements that matter most to the customer, the elements of the customer value proposition that matter. How do you get a handle on what's really going to matter? And how do you think of the car less as an OEM tier one, tier two, which has been the traditional structure, but how do you think of the technology stack and which elements of the stack, of the technology stack, do you need to play a critical role in? The second thing that I think car companies will need to do, which is again different than how it has worked historically for the automotive industry, but is something that other industries have learned really well, is the monetization of data. Recognizing that there is big investments that will need to happen in software, players need to start to think about how do you monetize the data? For example, usage-based insurance, but that really is the tip of the iceberg and there'll be a whole new world of opportunity there. The third thing we'd say is around what we call as agile and two-speed R&D. And traditionally, the automotive industry has used a waterfall-based approach to software development. Now, as the car becomes a computer on wheels, the amount of software content in the car is going to triple in the next 15 years. To be able to get that um, software developed is going to require a massive increase in the number of software engineers. And currently the industry is just not positioned to be able to meet that incoming demand. And therefore the model which is more productive, which is used by the rest of the world is a model called Agile. Now Agile is typically about two and a half times more productive and about two times faster than the waterfall based approach. In the automotive industry, however, the challenge is how do you take a linear sequential product development approach the industry has developed for the last hundred years and combine that with a model like Agile, which is much more rapid, much more iterative. And being able to get to this new model is what we call as a two-speed R&D. And what's interesting, in spite of all these requests for a much, much higher productivity in software development, our model predicts that we still need about 100,000 additional software engineers for the automotive industry in the US alone. So a huge number. That is a big uh, challenge, not only for the industry, but uh, for society as such and for the industry in general to build up and to build those talents for the software engineers. Um, and while Software is a huge important, that's just one out of 25 new competences that we analyze the auto industry has to pick up. Good news is that at this point of time, we are at record uh, years in terms of profitability. So there is a financial cushion for the industry to take on those challenges. And uh, we still believe uh, that the integration that has to happen on an automotive level is actually a good asset that the industry has today. So we are all positive that they will be able, if they, if they act quickly enough and decisively enough, that they will be in a good position to master these challenges.
Potentially, this is really good news, isn't it, for car companies? Because actually, you're in more sort of uh, constant touch and sort of intimate touch with your consumers, and you know more about your, your consumers and their habits than if you were just sort of making a metal box, selling it through a dealer, and unless there's a recall, you might not have very much contact again. Our view is that this disruption is both good news and bad news for the industry. The bad news is that the traditional business models and the traditional technologies have peaked. The good news is that for players who are able to move successfully into this new world, there is a whole new world of revenues and profit pools that could come from the ACES opportunity. And the size of that is going to be very significant. So let's just talk a little bit more about what you call the, the control points, why consumers really buy vehicles and what matters to them most. I know we've actually done quite a lot of consumer research on this. So what, what do we know about what consumers want? In addition to what Asad just uh, mentioned on the uh, willingness of consumers to switch brands for better connectivity offerings, I think we also found out that 86% of the consumers are really looking for uh, driver assistance systems, which bring up safety, which eventually also, if we have uh, level 3 and level 4 um, autonomy, uh, autonomy in the cars, also open up completely new use cases. You can use your smartphone in the car, which for many of our consumers, as we found out, is the most important aspect um, of using the driving time more productively. For the auto industry, there's a good analogy. Uh, if you look at the gaming industry, how the gaming industry is really having a 24-7 view on their consumers, especially the most important consumers, those heavy players that are actually accounting for the majority, for 90% of the profit pool. And they are watched continuously. Server load is, is watched continuously. And that is something the auto industry will also have to copy, that you have a clear eye on how your consumer is using the product and what you have to do in order to make the customer experience as superior as possible. So let me build on what Andreas just said around ADAS, which when we look at our consumer research, as Andreas said, about 86% of the consumers are willing to potentially switch vehicles because of ADAS. Now, if you look at ADAS, inside of ADAS, if you're an, or if you're an automotive OEM, you'd go back and say the things that there's probably two or three things that really matter. The first is, what does the cloud content look like? Because that's part of what we call as high-definition mapping, which really uh, drives the user experience. The second is the quality of the algorithms that you're using to be able to write the software. And the last part of this is the sensors, which are essential for accurate perception and improved driving experience. So if you think about it, consumer-backed, you'd say those are the three critical control points in ADAS. Then you take a step back and say, which of those can you own? Which of those do you need to buy? And which of those do you need to facilitate? And facilitate is a new skill. Automotive players are used to either owning or buying. Facilitation is really technology, is a certain level of technology integration with other players in the ecosystem who've got critical capabilities, but with an ability to still positively impact the customer experience. It's interesting that you mention ecosystems. We recorded a podcast uh, a little while ago uh, talking about actually the, the ecosystem view of strategy that was having to come to quite a lot of different industries because of the technology enablement and the integration that's, that's required. It sounds like the automotive industry is almost exhibit A for a whole new view, actually, and a whole new sort of strategic competency. Is, is that kind of right? 
I think that's totally right. I think the, the automotive industry is a good example of, in the past, successful cooperation between suppliers and OEMs in the value chain. But at this point of time, it has been very linear. So the, the OEM did the specifications, they did the systems, and then the suppliers were delivering certain systems, certain components, and the whole value chain was very, very structured. I think we are looking at the future where we will see ecosystems, where we have competition. You will cooperate with certain players while you compete in other areas. It will be much more open. It will be a real open platform of different companies bringing their competences and obviously then the automotive players integrating them into a product and someone really making sure that the customer experience um, is there. But the way of cooperating will be completely different and I think that's also one of the big challenges for the companies to open up for such a more dynamic and more open platform-based cooperation. So they need to learn to play nice with others? It will be interesting to see those new forms of cooperation with all trades of the auto industry, like a big view on operational excellence, on a zero defect uh, strategy, how that will play out and how we will see the combination of those two things of a more dynamic platform-based cooperation with old-fashioned and very, very important uh, elements of the auto industry in combination. So it's almost sort of lean production and agile having to be kind of melded together, two of the great management trends actually of the last 30 years or so, one that's been around for a long time, one that's only just emerging, and they're going to have to be uh, ambidextrous and do both. Yeah, I would agree with that, but I think in addition to lean and agile, there is also uh, another frontier that's going to open up for the industry, which I think you've heard uh, called Industry 4.0. And, and the way we would think about it is that, the, listen, I think the first industrial revolution really involved mechanization, water, and steam power. Um, the second one saw the assembly line, which the automotive industry actually led. And the third industrial revolution, really, value was created by computers and automation. When we look at Industry 4.0, it's a new world in which the physical world is going to coexist with the virtual, with unprecedented amounts of data, computing power, and other advances. Every single era has seen a massive shift from a productivity standpoint, has seen a massive implication around the kinds of skill sets that are relevant, massive and profound implications on society. And I think Industry 4.0 is actually different than Lean. Lean was about how do you take existing processes and make it more efficient. Industry 4.0 is about reimagining the work itself. And the question here is, how does the automotive industry, on top of all this disruption, take advantage of the capabilities that are coming from Industry 4.0, which is essentially high amounts of data with great amounts of analytics that's going to provide an opportunity for productivity and take advantage of that to drive some of the productivity that's needed to be able to fund all the investments that are going to be needed. And if you just think about the billions and billions that the industry now has to invest into ensuring the maturity and the quality levels of a product through prototyping, through durability testing um, for, for powertrain solutions as well as the car in the future with condition monitoring, constant view on the cars. I think a lot of that will be done through simulations, a lot of them will be through digitization and by having constant overview on the condition of the car out in the road, um, that whole system of making sure that the quality is right for the consumer uh, will be able to be done at much lower cost levels. So this is why I I happen to live in Palo Alto in California, and and this is why over the last 10 years I see all these automotive OEMs and a lot of automotive suppliers opening research facilities and quite big campuses in Silicon Valley. To play devil's advocate here, 
go back to the mobile phone industry, whenever you get disruptive changes like this, the incumbents really struggle. And there are probably a few examples of tectonic changes like this in the technology, the control points, the industry structure, where the incumbents, the, the dominant players, do manage to navigate the transition. Can the big car companies really make this? When disruption happens, our experiences, first and foremost, the consumers benefit a lot. But also the profit pool shift with the, with the shift in the control points. Interestingly enough, what we are finding is that um, in, the, in the automotive industry, when we did research around what brand of autonomous vehicles are likely to buy, consumers still have a high degree of confidence behind the current brands that OEMs have and believe that there's going to be a certain degree of uh, trust and safety that's associated with buying an autonomous car from a brand name OEM. However, the incumbents still have advantages as far as consumers are concerned, but the consumers are going to be pretty brutal and very finicky around whether or not they're able to meet their increasingly high levels of expectations. Understanding the customer, I think that's the single biggest item uh, in, to make this change uh, positive. Obviously, there are a few other assets that the auto industry has. It's a highly regulated industry. It's an industry where the car has to be kept safe and in sound condition over a period of five to ten years in many markets even longer. So the entry barriers for others are obviously pretty high uh, but by all means that's not a cushion for the industry to rest upon but it really just means how do we acquire those new resources, how do we acquire new competences, how do we cooperate together and I think we see many many positive examples of, of companies taking on that challenge but um, given the brutality of the change I think the complexity for management is, is really, really high to master all of those. So sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thanks again to Asatosh and uh, Andreas for speaking with us today. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for joining. To read more about cars, technology, and to learn a little about the McKinsey Center for Future Mobility, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.